Good morning. You know, it's really refreshing to see a lot of rain this year. Um, I think of the, the report last year was that last year was supposed to be El Nino, but it seems like this year is El Nino, and we're getting a lot of rain, and um, I just can't help but think, what an answer to prayer. Because I remember here at this chapel in the prayer meetings and uh, just at Bible studies, we'd be praying for rain. And here, a year later, I would say, the Lord has answered us abundantly, right? We have so much rain. Uh, you see the hills and you see the mountains. It's all green and fresh and the air is fresh, something that Californians, especially in Southern California, we don't really experience all that much. So uh, it's really nice to uh, breathe the fresh air. And also, um, you just see just that the Lord is good um, and all of that, that we can trust in him and depend on him, rely on him. And even when, you know, we were in a drought and it seemed like, is this drought ever going to end? You know, are we going to run out of water? And uh, what are we going to use to shower and uh, water the grass? But um, the Lord has provided and uh, this morning, I wanted to, to go into 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would turn with me there. First Peter chapter 1. When you start off and you read 1 Peter, you realize right away that this is an intelligent man. And it's funny to say that because oftentimes when you hear about the Apostle Peter, you talk about the Apostle Peter, it's about a man who he's, some would call him unintelligent, quick-tempered, uh, irrational, a lot of different words like that. Uh, but when you read First Peter, you realize this is a man who he's not unintelligent. And he starts off by even mentioning the theology of the Trinity. And we know that the Trinity, the word itself is not used, but all throughout Scripture, the old and the new, we see references of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we, we attribute that to Peter having been with Jesus for three years, being educated, you, you could say, in the school of Jesus. And this... Book 1 Peter and 2 Peter, uh, being written by the Apostle Peter, sometime around probably 64 AD. Uh, it was written to those who reside as aliens, and uh, the locations we'll, we'll read uh, here shortly. Uh, 1 Peter 5.13 states, the epistle is written from Babylon. And this could literally be, literally be Babylon, but most likely not, because at that point, Babylon was pretty, pretty much non-existent, and oftentimes the word Babylon was used as a code name for Rome, and we know that towards the end of Peter's life, he reside, resided in Rome. So we assume that it was written from Rome. Suffering is mentioned all throughout this epistle, and I think recently I was talking to someone talking about suffering and how this is a, an unbelieving, uh, secular person. And he says, I think suffering matures a person. And going through and reading First Peter, I have to agree. You know, and in Scripture, we see that suffering leads to perseverance and 
uh, perseverance to a maturity. And uh, when we rely on Christ in those times, it really uh, helps us to focus on the person that we need to focus on, the Lord Jesus Christ. The persecution could have been maybe from, it could have been the, the emperor at the time, Nero. It could have been also maybe the pagan society which, in which they lived. These people around him, they worship pagan gods, and uh, they would have been probably hostile towards them. And so in trying to, to sh- maybe live out Christ, to share Jesus, it would have been difficult, and they might have been persecuted, maybe even martyred. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, it gives a reason or purpose of why he's writing this epistle. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is a true grace of God. The evidence for our faith in Jesus Christ becomes even more of a reality when we suffer for him, which leads to our remembering the cost of our salvation and the glories that follow. And so we look to him. We know that even while we suffer, we think of how it's only for a short period of time. It's temporary. And in First Peter, if you read the whole book, you see that he gives a lot of challenges and he gives a lot of encouragement. I think that that's something that uh, the people here can really take for themselves because when you're suffering, when you're going through hardship, you, want, you need someone to come alongside you and, and pray for you, to encourage you, to tell you, you know, that the Lord is with you that you can trust in the Lord, that the Lord is faithful. So I'll read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter, an apostle or a messenger, he, he says this, I think, to bring out, when he calls himself an apostle, to bring out who he is. And I don't know if maybe the aliens in the area who he's writing this epistle to, they need to know his credentials or the authority which, with which he's writing, But nonetheless, he writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And when you read a letter from someone you know well, and I don't know if these people, these aliens, uh, when you read to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout these different areas, I don't know if they knew Peter personally or they were just receiving this letter. But for those, I'm sure, who personally knew Peter, who knew the experiences that Peter had, who knew the the time he spent with Jesus, and also all the the difficulties and the sufferings that Peter himself faced, I'm sure they can 
receive this letter and accept it, knowing that this is someone who has gone through it. I, when you read a letter from someone you know well, I think immediately emotions kind of bubble up inside you. And I think of, and this is a moment in my life that I will never forget. It'll be something that um, it was on the day of Rachel and I, when we were getting married, uh, we were in the, I was in the room with the guys getting dressed, getting ready. And uh, Rachel had written me a note. And Rachel is my wife, for those of you who might not know. And um, she wrote me a note, and it was a note that was written two years previous. And in this note, it was written right after we had gone to a marriage seminar. And she had written a bunch of promises. Promises that, as a wife, she would fulfill to me. And uh, when I was reading it, I couldn't help but tear up, you know, and... It was just, the words were so precious to me. And these promises that she was writing in this, in this letter were, you know, it was just uh, really dear to my heart. And, you know, I even read it from time to time, and it's, it's, I keep it somewhere safe. And I think maybe some of the aliens who were reading this epistle from Peter may have felt the same way. That they felt this, this brother Peter, uh, this apostle Peter is writing to them. And what does he have to say? When it says to those who reside as aliens, I think of, you know, how hard it must have been for them to adjust. And I think we have to take in consideration the situation that these aliens were in. They were in a hostile environment. There must probably uh, a lot of pagan worshiping going, around, going on around them. And how do they adjust? How do they, what do they have to do to get to know people and to, you know, they have, they want to live for Christ, I'm sure, but what do they have to do in order to do that? And I think of myself, and uh, this morning I met a fellow Chicagoan, and I don't know whether to call myself a Chicagoan or a Californian, I live my life half in Chicago and half in California now, and uh but when you, when I moved from Chicago to California, I had to make an adjustment. And honestly, I know it's in the U.S., but it wasn't easy. And I was moving in a period of time when I was in high school. I was still maturing and learning things about myself. And it was hard. And I think of my parents who were immigrants from South Korea. And they moved from South Korea when they were mid-20s, almost 30s. They moved to my mother to Germany and then to America. I think of the difficulties of having to learn a new language, having to try to do business with people you don't, you don't know. You don't have any connections. You have no help. And so you have to adjust. You have to assimilate to the culture around you. These aliens, who were they? Were they Jews? Were they Gentiles? When you read 1 Peter 1.14, it says... As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which are yours in your ignorance. In 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers. Verse, chapter 2, verse 10. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Chapter 4, verse 3. For the time already passed is sufficient for you 
to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. Excuse me. And so when you read those verses, it seems as though he's speaking to Gentiles, but it could be Gentiles and Jews. I think Peter is addressing them in this way is very appropriate, calling them aliens, because I, I believe that's what they were, physically where they were, and also spiritually. They were aliens. They weren't, they're not at home. They're not in heaven with the Lord. And so they were in a place where they were aliens physically and spiritually, and I think we ourselves sometimes really need to be reminded of this, that we need to understand that this world is temporary. It'll fade away, but Ephesians chapter 2, real quick, I want to read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13 says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And how wonderful that thought is that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the, the sufferings of Christ. We can now have a relationship with God. I think of all the stickers. I'm sure many of you have seen those not-of-this-world stickers on the back of cars, and you see people wearing T-shirts, hats, and you see the symbol being portrayed. And I think to myself, it's a reminder to me every time I see it, how am I living this life? Am I living this life like this world is my permanent home, that I'm going to enjoy the things in this world as much as I can, or am I going to live according to the Lord's will? The next portion, the end of verse 1 leading into verse 2, right away you just see some heavy words. And I think that when you read this, well, I'll go ahead and read it. It says, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And I don't want to shy away from what is being said here. And for some people, this might be hard words to understand. And I'm not going to say I completely understand it. But one thing I understand is that God is sovereign. And I think some people see the word chosen. Another word is elect. And you see the word foreknowledge. And that kind of leads them to a trail of thinking that uh, it's a, a Calvinistic way of thinking. But when you read it carefully, it says, Who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God is sovereign. And he desires in 1 Timothy 2.4, he desires all men to be saved. And in the book Systematic Theology by Dr. Lewis Sperry Schaefer, I quote, Systematic theology, in his book Systematic Theology, foreknowledge in God is that which he himself purposes to bring to pass. In this way, then, the whole order of events from the last detail until the greatest operates under the determining decree of God so as to take place according to his sovereign purpose. By so much divine foreknowledge is closely re related to foreordination. Likewise, foreknowledge in God should be distinguished from omniscience in what the latter ex is extended sufficiently to embrace all things past, present, and future, while knowledge anticipates only the future events. 
because God knows what's going to happen in the future, his sovereign decisions are made in accordance with his future knowledge. And um, I'm just going to leave it at that. And uh, there's uh, many uh, theologians and many men who have argued uh, some points about this, uh, but we're going to move forward. Uh, it says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And I think uh, the sanctifying work, we think about you know, the, the sanctifying work that happens when an unbelieving wife is with a believing husband or a, a believing parents are with unbelieving children and they're sanctified by this. But there's also, I think back on my testimony and how my parents were saved, I was not. And the sanctifying work of the Spirit in John 16, verse 7 and 8, and this is a verse that I can think back that really helped me understand why I needed salvation. John chapter 16, verse 7 and 8 says, Excuse me, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, this is Jesus speaking, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. I think about how that sanctifying work of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit convicted my life of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I believe there is a work of sanctification that, sanctification that the Holy Spirit performs to bring believers to maturity. Just as, in, as I said, as an unbelieving person is sanctified by a believing wife or a believing husband or believing parents, it goes on to say that, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Think about in the Old Testament when the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies once a year and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat seven times for the atonement of the nation. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this very earth to fulfill that picture, to die on a cross for our sins, and his blood being shed for us was the propitiation for our sins, was the price that paid completely for our sins. And now it's up to each person whether you want to accept him, whether you want to accept that his work finished on the cross for you is enough. You can believe it or you can reject it. The Old Testament says, the life is in the blood. That's in Leviticus 17.11. And in Hebrews 9.22, without blood there is no remission of sins. We know that Christ, his precious blood was spilt for us. Now it goes on to say, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Think about how as Peter walked with Jesus, as he experienced life with Jesus for three years, what it must have been like to see how gracious the Lord was when he said, let the children come to me. Let the, and, he, and you name it, the sick, the lame, those that needed healing. He always allowed them to come and he would heal them. And Peter, seeing that mercy, that grace from the Lord Jesus, and seeing the peace of so many of these people who had been healed. And you think of Peter and his denial of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he must have felt like, the shame 
And yet, the Lord Jesus was so gracious. The Lord is so merciful, and he restores Peter back to himself. And he challenges Peter to be a fisher of men. Think of the people that Peter was talking to, these aliens, and how in no matter how difficult the circumstance, no matter how harsh the persecution, no matter how difficult it is trying to get along with those in this pagan world that these aliens are living in, yet he continues in this epistle to encourage them to keep their eyes on Jesus. I was listening to a conversation in the break room at work that a coworker was having a, uh, a believer and um, someone who wasn't a believer and they were sharing the gospel with this person and telling them, you know, this is what Jesus had done, that he died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day and his blood was payment for our sins, he shed his blood for us and if you would just ask for forgiveness, you can be saved, you can have eternal life. And this other person, this unbelieving person said, why do you believe in a God you can't see? Why do you trust something that, I mean, you read the Bible, but do you, how can you really understand it? And this, this believer, it, it seemed maybe that this person was a new believer. And they said, you know what? When I got saved, all I can tell you is I had a peace that I had never felt before. It was something that a burden was lifted off my shoulders and I just felt that everything was, was right in my life all of a sudden when I trusted Christ. It was amazing to hear that testimony just, just in the break room because, I mean, this person, I mean, they may not have been a, a believer for long, but they're still sharing, talking about the peace that they had from God. And I think we as believers, we have experienced the grace. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have experienced a grace, something that you didn't deserve, but now you have eternal life. You have that. And now you can have a peace in the fullest measure. And you realize that in no matter circ what circumstance you go through, that God is sovereign, that he'll take care of you, that he'll remain faithful. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7 says... Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. And these are some verses that I think it's important to just read and just come back to it sometimes because this is what it says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your minds and hearts. And I think that kind of correlates really well with, uh, as we move forward, verse 5. But one thing I think of when I think of the peace, especially for a believer is uh, Grandpa George, George McKay, and many of you knew him here at this assembly. And 
I remember going to his bedside uh, the day before he passed away. Rachel and I went to visit him. And one thing, I don't know how he was like all the way up to that point, but when we visited him that day, he had a very peaceful look on his face. It was very serene. And uh, Rachel and I prayed with him, and I can't remember if we sang a song with him or not, but uh, just visiting him and seeing his face, someone who's trusted Jesus Christ, who knows where his hope lies, he knows that he's placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, knows where his eternal, eternal security lies. And just his face was so calm. And I hear stories of other believers as they're passing away, that peace, that peaceful look on their face. And I think, you know, only a, really a believer can have that kind of peace, especially at that moment in their life. And it's just a wonderful thought that if you're born again, you can have a peace, no matter what circumstance, knowing that God is sovereign. Moving on, it says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. I think of blessing the Lord, to praise the Lord, to remember him in trials. Um, I think of the word blessed and what it means, and it's to speak well of. And this morning, when we remember the Lord Jesus, thinking of what he's done for us, how he went to Calvary, how he was whipped, how the crown of thorns was put on his head, the suffering that he went through for, for us, for the, all of humankind. And when we remember that, we can praise him, we can lift him up, and we can exalt him. And the more we understand the complexity of our salvation, we realize that God is, he's, he's due so much praise. He's worthy of all the praise that we can muster. William MacDonald says this about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, the one with the exclusive right to rule in hearts and lives. And I think... I, I pray and say, Lord, I say, Lord Jesus Christ, but do I really mean that? Do I understand that when I say, Lord, do I understand what that means? Do I really understand? Is he that for us, that he's our Lord, that we're willing to give up everything, that we're willing to sacrifice whatever it is for him? And, and I'm not saying that we, we can't enjoy, you know, buying certain things and going to certain places. But what I'm saying is, have you given up everything for the Lord and said, you know what, Lord? It doesn't matter what happens. So what if, you know, this didn't work out in my life? I know that you have a greater plan. And is that how we, how we look to the Lord? And Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sins, Christ, God's anointed one who has been exalted to heaven's highest place. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, think of how great a mer God's mercy is toward us. 
I don't, it's not something that's it's brand new that I'm saying here, but it, I think it's important to, to remember, to be reminded that God's mercy was so great for each and every one of us that he would send his only begotten son for us. He had a plan of salvation for all of mankind. He could have just let us die. He could have just let us fall and leave us in our fallen state to die, to be condemned for all eternity, but he didn't. Think about, again, Peter as he's writing this. I wonder what he's thinking as he's writing his epistles. Maybe thinking of some of the experiences that he went through as he walked with the Lord. Maybe about the time that he was sinking in water when he asked the Lord to come to him on the water and the Lord Jesus pulled him up. Maybe after denying Jesus in front of people and being restored, he can think of God's mercy and how great it is. And it has, it has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I just can't help, but I have to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because I, I think when it talks about the resurrection, that this explains it very clearly to get a better idea of how important the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is, that because the Lord Jesus is resurrected, we have a living hope. Starting in verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, the Apostle Paul. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labor, labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ, in this life only, we are all, of all men, most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of, the, of those who are asleep, 
For since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But, in, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. I know that was a long reading of scripture, but I think that really emphasizes the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The inheritance is something that is imperishable. It will last forever, won't decay. It's death-proof, undefiled, something that cannot stain or be polluted. Uh, speaking of sin-proof and will not fade away, time-proof. So it's death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. What is this inheritance that is being spoken of, you ask? John 14, 2 says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There's the inheritance of a dwelling place or a mansion. And we see in scripture the crowns and the rewards that will be given. An inheritance, general. if you think about an inheritance, it's received upon death, right? And we see that Jesus died, was buried, but it, in this circumstance, he, he rose again on the third day. And when he left, we, upon receiving Christ, we have a salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, and I, this is a... I, don't, I want to say a little bit maybe off topic, but I was thinking about inheritance and what we inherit and the fact that if you trust Christ, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I think when you inherit a trait from your parents and people generally when they see you and they see the way you act, they see, they see the way you talk and how you interact with people, Oftentimes, they see your parents. They see the traits of your parents. They see the personality come out, some of their personalities, whether it's good or bad. And I ask you, and I had to ask myself, if we're born again, and we have the Spirit indwelling in us, do people see the traits of Jesus in us? Are you yielding, are we yielding to the Lord? and the moving of the Spirit in our life? Or is it our pride? Is it our selfishness? Is it the things that we want that motivate us? Is it getting in the way of God using us to His full potential? Because people say, you know, I want to live up to my full potential. But it's not, as a believer, it's not our full, pot our full potential that we want to live up to. It's God's full potential. And if the, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, are we really living our life to that potential? Moving on to verse 5 of 1 Peter. It says, Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who, referring to believers, are protected, and we don't have to worry about losing our salvation because once we receive Christ, it's a one-time deal. 
We receive Christ and that's it. We have eternal life. We have salvation. And it says God's power will protect and guard us till Jesus Christ comes again. And I think what an encouragement that is to these people who are going through persecution. That Peter is saying, I know you're going through all of this, but look at Jesus. He went through the suffering. He shed, shed his blood for you. Look to him. I think about protection or guard, guarding. And I think of my brother who is on an aircraft carrier right now. And uh, one of the things that uh, an aircraft carrier is worth about four to six million, or excuse me, billion. And it's, I mean, that's a, a very expensive ship. And you don't want to just lose that ship or you don't want it to uh, get destroyed. And so you have a fleet of boats that are around the destroyer sort of protecting the aircraft carrier. And I think of our salvation, we don't have to protect, protect it. Once we're born again, we're born again forever. We don't have to trust in Christ over and over again. God's the one who protects our salvation. It's by the power of God and the power of God being, that's, that's God who does the protecting. But it says, through faith, that's our part, that we have faith in him for salvation. God is the one who preserves our inheritance. He preserves the heir of the inheritance as well, those of us who have trusted Christ. It is, you often see it pointed out that there are Three tenses of salvation. A Christ was saved from the penalty of sin the moment he first trusted the Savior, Ephesians 2.8. He is saved daily from the power of sin as he allows the Savior to live his life through him, Romans 5.10. He will be saved from the presence of sin at the time of the rapture, Hebrews 9.28. And his body will be changed and glorified and he will be forever free from sin, sickness, and death. One day when the Lord comes, we will receive our new bodies. And it says, revealed in the last time. And speaking of the Lord Jesus, when he comes back uh, with his, the saints to be triumphant. Peter, with authority, reminds, reminds and reassures these aliens in these different places that no matter what hardship we go through, and if you read the rest of the epistle and we're going to continue on this evening. You read the difficulties that they had to go through. But yet, Peter reminds them about the Lord Jesus Christ, about their hope in him, about their salvation that they can't lose, that is permanent. I think as you look at the, think about the aliens and the, the experiences that they must have gone through, we look at ourselves. How do we go about living our lives in this day and age? I know that it's hard. I, I go, through it, uh, go through it on a daily basis, and I'm sure that in the workplace, you, know, you hear all the, the cussing, the swearing, the profanity, using God's name in vain, and all the, uh, the talk that's uh, inappropriate that you hear, and just everything you see in media. But yet... Are we living this, this life as aliens? Or are we living this life as permanent residents, thinking that this life 
is where our home is. Let's consider that and may we think on the Lord Jesus Christ as he is the one we can turn to at all times. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning that we have a hope that will not fade, a peace that is, surpasses all understanding, a grace that is so wonderful that we can continue to think about it, to talk about it, and have, not have words will run out of words to describe everything that the Lord Jesus means to us because of all that he's done for us. We think of this epistle that Peter is writing to these aliens spread abroad. And we just think of our own lives and we just pray that you would encourage us, that you would help us as we're challenged from day to day from, by coworkers and friends and neighbors and people around us. Help us to live a life for Christ. Help us to show forth the character of Christ in all that we do. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.